Uh, I think that is fair to say. As I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. (laughs) But, uh... No, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And our very special guest today is... Maida Coleman. Former state senator from the St. Louis area. We're actually in her her state senate district, the beautiful 5th senatorial district. Yes. And the director of the Office of Community Engagement. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It's, it's wonderful to have you. I'm excited to be here, but I must point out also that... This was also my state representative district yes. that I've served in for a very short time. Yes. Um, you have a, your legislative trajectory is probably different from most people, to say the least. We'll get to that in a minute. But before we get into your legislative and current role, just tell us a little bit about yourself. We've had a lot of Southeast Missouri natives on, and today is no exception. Proud to be from the lovely hamlet of Sykeston, Missouri, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> down in Missouri's Boot Hill, known as the home of the Throat Rose because there's a restaurant there that people flock to. Lamberts. Did you ever catch them or throw them? Oh, I have a sister that actually used to bake those rolls. Yeah. And really? so, yeah. I've, I've never actually been there, but I've heard it's pretty good. Well, the food is excellent. And the rolls are fantastic, and you cannot have a roll without molasses and butter dripping and oozing all through it. You're killing me here. And, and I haven't had lunch, but I just have to throw in this plug. The, one of the other best things about Lambert's is before you even get the food that you order, servers are going around with pots of food and just serving it on the table and you eat so much before you get your actual order you're too stuffed to sit there no, we, we could talk about lambert's for hours but um what, what, what was kind of your your life and career like before you got into politics well, on the sykeston theme i'm the eldest of eight kids we lived on the edge of sykeston um in an area called sunset that's where all the blacks lived on the other side of the railroad tracks on um, one side of my house was a cow pasture, and across the field was a cornfield. And so great memories of growing up in Sykeson. I was one of its first African-American cheerleaders back in really? 1968. My Do you have any pictures of yourself Oh, back yeah. Then? As a matter of fact, on my Facebook page right now, my uh, kids are showing a picture of me with glasses on uh, speaking at my high school commencement and so lots of cheerleading pictures and and good times I enjoy Sykes and I was just there last weekend and and just enjoy it it's a great place to be from and people there are lovely so how'd you end up up here in in sunny not so cheery at times St. Louis I went to school at Lincoln University Graduated from there in 1976 and met my husband there my freshman year. I met my future husband in October of my freshman year. We dated the entire four years in college, got married a year after I completed college, and he happened to be from Carruthersville. 
which is further down there. But his job transferred him here to St. Louis, and that's how he ended up here in 1977. So if I'm not mistaken, you were involved in kind of the Democratic Party committee system before you got elected. You were actually the original 7th Ward uh, committee woman. I don't know if you know this, but there's a very popular Twitter account from the current 7th Ward committee woman, Mary Selesky, I think is her name. Mm -hmm. And she's very active on Twitter, but you were like the, the original 7th <laughs> Ward woman. Is that well, yeah, right? we were part of the original 7th Ward, and we go back to um, lots of great people who've come out of that 7th Ward. And I actually got involved because of Ronnie White, former Supreme Court Justice, knocked on my door one night down in the Fox Park neighborhood where I lived then and actually live again now and was asking for my vote, and I told him I didn't know him, and I thought that everybody in Joe City was stupid because nobody used common sense, <laughs> and that he said, you need to come get involved in our ward. And I became the treasurer of the organization, the president, eventually the committee woman, state rep, and then the senator. So you were elected, I think, to the state, state rep, what, in 2000? 2000. And you... You know, we're probably expecting to stay there eight years. In some alternate universe, you would be the state senator right now. But in 2001, Paula Carter, who had recently been elected to the mm -hmm. Senate, passed away right. very early into her term. And I, I remember reading archives. I'm sure Joe wrote a couple of articles yeah, about it. Yeah, because I was it, actually at her funeral, yes. That mm -hmm. um, there was kind of this scramble to replace her in the Senate, and you were chosen yes. out of a, a couple of other people. Her son was one of the contenders in the Democratic nomination, as was State Rep. Lewis Ford. Yeah, so, I remember that. So it was a very rapid rise. There are people now who, like, spend millions of dollars and try so desperately to get to the Missouri Senate. You got there basically after, what, one year in the Missouri House? Sure. I got sworn in in January 2001. Unfortunately, Senator Carter died in November. In December, I won the nomination. And in February of 2002, I was elected to the Senate. Now, because of the sequencing, and you could only serve like one other complete term. Yes. And I think that actually there was a constitutional amendment that would have allowed you to serve another term, but mm -hmm. that was before then. You became the Senate Minority Leader. I was there during some of the fiercest battles I've ever seen. You were kind of like in the middle of some very controversial policy battles because the Senate was the last line of defense back then yes. before bills went to then Republican Governor Matt Blunt. There were PQs, which we've talked about a lot on these shows. There was insults being traded on both sides. It seemed like a fun time to be in the legislature. Well, I tell you, I, you can't tell by the color of my hair, but there is a lot of gray that came out <laughs> as a result of that high number of PQs. I think we probably had, you know, the largest number of PQs per session that's ever happened. And we had some pretty interesting people in the Senate at that time. So it was contentious a lot, but I think one of the things that I do pat myself on the back about is that I did try to keep it as civil as possible under my leadership. And, you know, our numbers were dwindling in great haste. And I think the numbers are even lower now. They were, because back when you were minority leader, I mean, Northeast Missouri had a Democratic senator. Even yes. Southern Missouri had a Democratic mm -hmm. senator. And, you know, Columbia had a Democratic senator. Right. Now, 
none of those places have Democratic yeah. senators. And for uh, kind of your predecessor, or actually your successor, Joe Kevney, he doesn't have nearly as much to work yeah. with as you did. Yeah. But it's a different dynamic because the Senate's not really the last line of defense. The governor is because he's a Democrat and he can veto things. So it's changed a little bit in that And respect. even more now with um, this veto-proof um, legislature with alleged, although Alleg it depends on yeah, certain that's issues. True. That's There's true. the Republican peel offs. When you just <laughs> look at it from the outside, it does look like it's gonna be a lot of work to get you know where the um, governor wants to be, but maybe not. You're right. So, you were out of the Senate, then what happened? Because I know, I mean, I know some of the tale, but you tell it. <laughs> so, I come back into the into state government under Governor Jay Nixon. Yeah, but first, weren't you thinking about running for statewide office at one point? Well, back in 2005, I did look at running for um, the state auditor seat. Yes. And you know what? It's interesting. I'd forgotten all about that because I tend to put bad things out it. of my mind <laughs> and the stories I could tell you if we had 100 hours <laughs> about, you know, you, you find out, you know, what you're made of of and who your friends are and and there was a lot of dynamics that you know now that you've made me think about it i Sorry. i want to cry <laughs> but yeah way to go joe you made our guests cry <laughs> so yes i did uh, look at that i did withdraw <laughs> as a matter of fact um i had a lot of support on the democratic side and was raising a lot of money then a story came out that i had Filed bankruptcy yes. back in nineteen. Actually, I think I don't I remember wrote that when. Story. <laughs> Joe Manners wrote the story. My good friend. So, um, but the no, you didn't because you would have told the truth in the story. Because but I did write one. You now, probably maybe did. I had more nuance. So in it. Who what knows? the what the story didn't say. It said I filed bankruptcy. What it didn't say is that at the time I was a single mother of three children, unemployed, and when I got a job after being unemployed for 11 months, I had the bankruptcy dismissed and paid back every yes. dime to yes. my creditors. But it was enough to make people say, oh no, my God, let's jump ship quickly. And so that was the end of that. Yeah. Okay, so now going forward, you ended up, the governor asked you to Come into his administration and work in the Department of Labor, and I was there at the division or the Department of Employment Security, where I worked for a year before we had the big disasters, um, the uh, levee breach down in Charleston, Missouri, called Birds Point Levee, flooded miles and miles of farmland. We had ice storms. We had the Joplin tornado. So I was put on loan to the Department of Workforce Development to monitor work sites because of a national emergency grant. We got to rebuild those areas. Right. Yeah. Then I went to workforce, and in September of last year, the governor tapped me to come run the Office of Community Engagement. And that's what we want to transition to next. Great. Tell me what this office is, does and what you've kind of done in the last almost year at sure. this point. Sure. Well, as a result of Michael Brown's death I'm August 9th of last yeah. year, all of that, um, the governor felt that there needed to be an entity in place to help 
engage this entire state. Although the office was created as a result of the Ferguson unrest, uh, the goal was to provide resources to get into our communities because we found that there is this sense of hopelessness, a lack of educational resources, and poverty that came forth. That's been part of all of the discussions of the results of of Ferguson's uh, attention that's been given to Ferguson. But those issues are across the state. So we are created to do three things. Find ways to lift people out of poverty, help create better educational opportunities, and to create jobs. And that's not something that's coming just to the St. Louis area, but all throughout the state we have poor people, and therefore we work as much as we can, not only very heavily in the St. Louis area, but also outstate. What are some of the, the programs that have kind of come about in your, your tenure as, as the leader of this office? Sure. Well, one of the things I found out very quickly is that people are very quick to help support programs that lift up youth. You, I think in part is because the thinking is that if we get to young people earlier and provide them with more resources, um, they will become the kind of citizen we all hope to live next door to. So we have several programs that we've been able to really promote for youth. One is underway right now. It's our big summer jobs program with the goal to employ over 3,500 young people that are um, financially strapped, live at the poverty level, uh, to put them in jobs across you know, the St. Louis area and in Jackson County. In St. Louis, we're employing 2,000 youth. We have 2,000 jobs and over 8,000 applicants for those jobs. Mm-hmm. We, um, this program has been going on since about the end of May and will probably last into September or so. We have um, just recently completed a diversity program where we brought in a representative from every school district in the St. Louis metropolitan area. About 56 kids spent a weekend at a hotel here in the St. Louis area learning how to get along with each other, learning about bullying, uh, racism, prejudice, all kinds of things that we can get you to work together on. And we have folks from all arenas, black, white, um, gay, um, Asian, Latino. So just to have a really diverse group. And one of the other programs that um, we have when it comes to youth is a fellows program that the governor is putting on right now that includes 15 youth from three uh, colleges in the St. Louis area and Jefferson City at Lincoln University that we're trying to help them become stronger and better men. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned youth because one of the things that I noticed right away after the Ferguson unrest was the kind of generational divide in kind of the protesters. You saw kind of the older establishment, and I'm, I'm using that kind of generally come out, you know, the NAACP, the organized groups, and then you saw kind of this youthful, almost organic 
protest to this entire situation. I think there was kind of a little bit of internal friction that we're kind of going to hear from one of the one of the first group's members, Reverend Tommy Pearson, who's also a state representative. And I was asking him a question about the fact that many of the more youthful protesters had criticized the clergy for not being as involved as they'd like. And this was kind of his response to this situation. The youth of yesterday had more respect for the elders than the youth of today. And so what happened in this last movement that there were, uh, they're smarter, they're weaker, and it, and it became for many of them a way to develop an organization and make money. So I know that the programs you mentioned are not necessarily political. You're trying to help younger folks. But when you're going around the state and you're talking with people and you're talking with people of all age groups and demographics, are you kind of sensing sort of the angst that Reverend Pearson is talking about, either the older generation not thinking the younger generation is good or the younger generation criticizing the older generation? Mm -hmm. Since you've been around the state, I'm interested to hear your perspective about this. I hear it on both sides, and I really think that both sides are valuable. You know, it's different now. When I was growing up, and I'm older than everybody in this room, and I can attest to that because I just had a birthday last night, and I know that youth, it's a different world. It's fast-paced. It's give it to me right now. I want results right now. The communication is faster. We're operating at the speed of light. There has been a place for the civil rights um, movement of the days gone by. It doesn't mean that it wasn't right. Obviously, since we just saw what happened with the shootings in Charleston, um, South Carolina, that that bigotry and hatred is still there. Those things that the as I like to call us, the um, old heads, that work is still important. You see a different way of doing that because things travel now at the speed of light, and you got to be able to react that way. And maybe the thinking from youth is that the older generation is a lot slower in getting things done and demanding change. And they certainly know how to ask for those things right now. Now, with all your efforts, there is the fact that the General Assembly hasn't been too keen about this office from the get-go and (laughs) the the state money that was allocated to it. Do you want to give us a status report on what's going on? Sure. I'll just mention that our office was not funded for the 2015 through 16 fiscal year. However, What uh, we did manage to get was an amendment latched on in the House that allows me to administer my summer jobs program. That's basically the work that our office is doing right now. You know, so will the office shut down? Well, at some point it will as we wind down our work. What are we talking about? I mean, is there funding there that's going to allow you to stay on at least for a while? To finish our programs, to um, certainly wrap up the things that we're in the process of doing right now. And there's about three programs that I'm winding down. Okay. Yeah. You know, the governor believes, as do I, that there needed to be an immediate 
approach to dealing with the issues that were brought up by Ferguson. And unfortunately, this legislature, I don't think, felt the same way. Um, you know, it's politics to some extent. And this office was created, although I think for very good reasons, by executive order. And you're just going to have some people who don't believe that the governor should exert any power in any manner other than the direction they give him. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the legislature because that was going to be my next set of questions. I want to play a clip now from House Speaker Todd Richardson, who was on our show last week. And we were talking kind of about the unfinished business that was left over after the session in terms of Ferguson-related policy. And he had this particular comment to say that I want to have a jumping point off next. But I think we need to be careful when, when looking at, uh, quote-unquote, a Ferguson-related you know, set of issues and, and having the entire conversation be about law enforcement. The reality is there are things we can do in the law enforcement space that, that make sense to do, no question about it. But if, if we allow that to dominate the conversation, we're missing the broader economic and educational issues that exist, not just in Ferguson, but in places across the state. So from what you have told me for the last 10 minutes, and many of your programs are kind of related to jobs, economics, education, diversity, do you think that maybe the speaker has a point that maybe the focus on just doing law enforcement related things like body cameras or sensitivity training are some of the things that the other states have passed may not be seeing the whole picture and the legislature may have to deal more organically with some economic and educational related initiatives? Well, certainly I think that he has a good point, but it can't just be about law enforcement because there are just so many big issues. You know, we've had to diagnose issues, figure out ways to implement solutions, come up with ideas. And so there's got to be a very holistic approach, I believe, to all of the things we have to contend with. You know, we've got to meet the needs of the youth. We've got to provide jobs. We've got to deal with the municipal courts issue, which, you know, the legislature fortunately did do some great work on. But it's got to be everybody chipping in and helping out because we've got big problems. And I'll tell you this, August 9th is coming. And the world is going to descend, as far as the media, back here in St. Louis again. And they're going to be wanting to see what have we done to move forth since Michael Brown's death. What programs are in place? What's coming along? What's happening? You know, are we going to be able to say that we've done some good things uh, that is moving this area forward. Yeah, because a lot of, you know, some people in the legislature, especially on the Democratic side, and especially within the Black Caucus, say what the legislature did over the last session was relatively inadequate. I mean, they, the municipal courts bill kind of gets brought up all the time, but a lot of the things that I just mentioned that have actually passed in other states didn't end up getting passed for various reasons. Mm -hmm. So are the, is the media going to come here? And by the media, I mean the national media. And they're going to be like, not much has been done? Or do you think there has been some progress? I remember seeing a, um, a media story. I think the 
B B C the British BBC BBC ran a report uh, that talked about the lack of change you know that you know buildings are still burned down and not removed yet along West Florissant and no one seems to have any clear uh, answer to what's next that is not something that I want to hear from around the world when people cover what's going on in St. Louis. You know, there are a lot of people who didn't even know the difference between St. Louis City and St. Louis County, where Ferguson is located. And if you don't know that, even within Missouri, how can we expect people from all over the world? When trust, trust, that was a pet peeve of mine as well, but I'm sure that was a pet peeve of many people, yeah. but continue. Well, those of us who love and understand this region, you know, my goal as the director of the Office of Community Engagement has been, I think, at the end of all of this, 20 years from now, when another big incident happens somewhere in this country, I want people to say, call Missouri. They got it right. They fixed the problems we had. So I don't want the media coming here in August on the first anniversary of Michael Brown's death saying they've not put forth anything that's going to last. And I think the municipal courts bill, it's a really good start but there are so many other things that we have to address also. Well, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because right after the Michael Brown shooting, I'm going to say six or seven days, I kind of came to the realization as a reporter that many of the problems that emerged in the divisions among race and class and economy and generation, those had been decades in the making. And the expectations of fixing them within even a year I think we're wholly unrealistic, right. and I still think are unrealistic. That's not to defend, you know, sure. not doing things right. or not passing initiatives, but kind of to jump off that observation, is is this going to be like a years-long reconciliation process? And do you think that it's going to be more interpersonal relationships as opposed to public policy, or is it going to have to be a mixture of both? Well, I do think people are taking a nearsighted approach that they want to see what's happening right now. But these things are going to take time because you're absolutely right. They didn't happen overnight. While there are many of us who always knew about the problems with the courts, I don't think all of us knew to the great extent that, you know, revenue was being made in these communities uh, off of the backs of traffic fines. I think that this has been long coming and it's going to take time to solve these problems. But in order to do that, we need programs in place. We need them to be implemented. We need people to care about these things and understand that it takes time. And as I used to tell people about this who said, well, I just don't believe the problems are that severe in the St. Louis area. My response has been, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not real. Yes. I, and one, one of the things that you were talking about was that it's not just police, and that's the same thing that uh, Speaker Richardson said. Are there particular things, being a former legislator yourself, that you would like to see the legislature look at? I mean, specific. Are there specific things, like one or two, 
that you think they really need to look at this or that? Well, I would just have to say that actually in my role as the director of this office, I've been standing as far away from politics as possible. So I have absolutely no opinion. Well, I mean, I'm not they... talking politics, but I'm talking, you know, initiative policy. Which sure, you, policy. Which sure. you would have a well, role in. Certainly education. We still got to continue to work on education, and I'm very excited that just last week the governor was able to announce how the 24 school districts in the St. Louis area has come together to create some ideas around a transfer program, and that's one area we really got to continue to work on. And I think we need to continue to work on uh, our court system the judicial system when it comes to sentencing and putting uh, programs in place to help people find jobs and stay in jobs. Those are the kind of things I think the legislature could really help us with and certainly the kinds of things that motivated me as a legislator. You know, I was a huge proponent of the St. Louis public school system and certainly uh, coming now from workforce I know that there is so much more we can do with finding uh, work-related, uh, work-readiness training for youth and yeah. young adults. I know this is going to be an awkward question to ask because it's a question about your immediate boss. But <laughs> I know that right after the office of after Nixon announced this, there were some people who were just like, "Well, this is a reaction to the fact that he had been, you know." getting a lot of criticism for his response to Ferguson. The similar thing happened after the Ferguson Commission occurred. I mean, what what do you kind of make of that criticism that some of these post-Michael Brown initiatives that the governor did, including your office, were just kind of essentially a knee-jerk reaction to a lot of criticism going his way? I don't think it was knee-jerk at all. I think it was part of a multifaceted approach to how do we deal with these problems. See, people are quick to uh, to criticize Jay Nixon, but in reality we have to remember that this was nothing that had ever happened in this city and in our state before. We have a tendency to deal with what we have to on a day-to-day basis. And when there is a problem, you jump to it. And in his case, he jumped on it. He created this office. The goal is to reach out and address concerns raised by all people and hope that we can come up with solutions. Interestingly, um, one of the most virulent critics of Nixon during this situation, Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal, She's been very critical of the Ferguson Commission, but when I ask her about you and the Office of Community Engagement, she's actually very complimentary toward you, and I think that she sees you as kind of a liaison that she can work with. Um, And I know that also Senator Nasheed and yourself, before she became a lot more pragmatic after you left, I think also had a pretty good relationship. So is that kind of a bonus that, you know, sometimes that the feuding Nasheed, Chappelle Nadal, senatorships have a pretty good relationships with you and you can kind of work with them and tell them what's going on with the governor? I do speak to them uh, quite often, actually, and I love both of those senators. They are bright, they're sharp, and they are fearless. And we all have different approaches. And, and you know, I left a legislature known as a, a diplomatic person. 
But I tell you, I love the fact that we have these strong women legislators, especially, that are not afraid to put it out there. They practice what they preach. And I have spoken to them on numerous occasions. And yes, it does help that we have relationships because, you know, I'm 100% behind both of them and Senator Kiki Curls Mm -hmm. up in Kansas City. They're young, they're bright, and they're fearless. And they are not afraid to uh, call something what it is, but they're all smart enough to know that we can still work together and get this done. I think one of the, the attributes of having me there and why it works for them is because they know I'm always going to tell them the truth. And I can only do so much, and they're appreciative of the fact that, you know, I will let them know what I can or cannot do. So we only have a couple minutes left. I, I kind of want to look way into the future. Like, in 10, 15 years when we all have a lot of foresight about what's happened over the last year, what do you think St. Louisans and the state will have learned from what's happened in Ferguson and the surrounding areas? I think the biggest thing I would like people to to learn and to take away is that we can never let our guard down. You know, there are so many things we have to constantly be concerned about and think about. And we're laid back you know, state, laid back part of the country. And we tend, I think, in general, not to look ahead, more reactive, unfortunately, sometimes than proactive. And I just think we've got to get critical thinkers together and come up with ideas on how we can all work together instead of this very parochial view that we not only have in the St. Louis area, but across the state. And I get all over it. And I love the people in Missouri. I think we have amazing people who want to create a great lifestyle for everyone. We've got to be prepared for whatever comes. And I think more importantly, even than being prepared, it's receptive to working with each other to create solutions and not automatically assume that your side can do it better than the other. Let's just get it done. Those are words of wisdom and from Maida Comer. I think that's a great way to end the show. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for, for coming here today and Thank talking you. with us. To close us out, you can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... at Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. I, I don't think you're on Twitter, but I do want to give you the opportunity just to say uh, where you can find out more about the Office of the Community Engagement. The Office of Community Engagement website address is oce.mo.gov. You should get on Twitter, by the way. I think you'd be fantastic on it. But oh, been on it. Yeah. Been, been there, there done, done that. <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> Thank you very much, as always, and until next week, so long. Uh-huh.